Yeah, we're live. We're Good evening. Live. Good afternoon. We are going to be doing a new study on translation and word studies. So we're going to look at some unique words in the Bible, and that usually ties into translation choices, so different versions translating certain words differently. Yeah. And so some of this will highlight the differences between modern versions and the King James, but it's really broader than that. It's just any particular word that you're going to see some variability with depending on the version you're looking at. And so tonight I'm excited because we're going to look at two and they're in the same chapter. There's a lot written on them and it's in Ezekiel 38. Ooh, 38. One of so we're going to be talking about Ezekiel and the end times in general soon on Sundays. Awesome. So we'll talk about Gog Magog and all of its ramifications at a later date. But right now we're just looking at two particular verses and getting deep into that. So we're going to try to make Wednesday nights more narrow, like just narrow focus. We'll take a Hebrew word or a Greek word or some translation debate and we'll okay. really highlight what people's views are and try to come to a conclusion. Okay. Uh, Friday nights, we will finish up our study on the firmament this coming Friday. And then after that, we'll talk about Revelation 1 through 3, the overcomer passages. That's definitely on the itinerary eventually. So we'll finish Ken Johnson's book, a okay. few more uh, studies on the different days. The, the Sabbath, we'll have a lesson on the Sabbath, I think, and we'll talk about Hanukkah. We'll talk about uh, Purim, and there's one other one that we were going to talk about. So there's a few more, and those Christmas? we'll cover. Easter? We talked about Christmas and we talked about Easter, <laughs> but those are good too. Those are but Jewish holidays. They are. Uh, no, Christmas is, well, Hanukkah, Tabernacles yeah. ties into Christmas uh, some, right. yeah, so we the, talked about that. Lights or whatever um, yeah. Hanukkah, of course. Yes. We're going to talk about that. Anyways, so those are the studies that we're doing, and Sundays we're going to be going through First John as usual, and once we finish that up in a couple weeks, we'll be back into... Um, the end times. So we talked about the end times a while back, I think. Uh, did we? Nothing, did we not? Nothing online. We had, no, didn't do anything online? Done. No, never done it. Well, I guess well, it's been a while then. I mean, we did when we were at Sunday school Yeah. at previous church. I think we did Ezekiel. Like, we Sunday did a school. long time ago. Yeah, we did go through Ezekiel. Ezekiel. We went through the whole book. Yeah. So that was fun. We're going to um, go through Revelation this time. Probably. I think what I'm going to do as well as people listening to this, if they're listening is probably post this one online because mm -hmm. you don't have a, you don't have a thing. I, I, uh, yeah. No PowerPoints for this one. So that'd be really easy for me to just post this out there. Sorry. Man, we're just talking about stuff. Just Anyways. trying to figure things out. We got a lot of great studies we're going to do and I'm excited, but it's hard to, you know, we have three different times that you meet during the week, what you're going to do on which day and yeah, yeah, what yeah. Fit be best fits because Fridays, I think it'd be great. Also on Fridays, I forgot to mention this. We're going to do a study on healing, the gifts of healing That's right. and the new apostolic reformation and how it's dangerous. I'll just say up front. Yes. And, if, and if you don't agree, then listen to what I have to say. Right. Because we're going to look at the word of God and we're going to see what it has to say. E even if there is real healing and 
that yeah, miracles yeah. do happen. And we're not what you might call the radical cessationists that don't believe there are any miracles. I mean, the fact that we're breathing right now is a miracle That's right. Amen. that we take for granted sometimes. But yeah, I do believe God does miracles yeah. all the time. But the gifts of healing and tongues and prophecy and apostleship. And stuff. It's questionable. We're going to talk about that for sure because that's important. But that'll be on Fridays. But let's get to Ezekiel 38. The first translation yeah. debate revolves around verse 2. So it says, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, yeah, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him. So again, the meaning of Gog Magog will break down more in detail later. But I'm going to go ahead and give you a sketch. If you've never heard of Gog Magog, this is an end times conflict, and it has not happened yet. There's nothing in any history, whether it's from the Bible or outside the Bible, to say that this has been fulfilled already. It has not been fulfilled, and it is put in the context of the end times. The Bible talks about the time of the end, and in, in this section of scripture, that's the focus of this Gog Magog battle. And it's not a war because it happens pretty rapidly. Um, you have the opening hostilities where Gog invades Israel in the north, the mountains of Israel. God intercedes and he defends his people Israel. He wipes out Gog and he also puts a fire upon the land of Magog. Right. So some people believe this may be nuclear possibly, and that's a possibility. Or it could just be God. I mean, I don't think that it was a nuclear bomb when Sodom and Gomorrah took place. No, I think exactly that was right. God. So however, however he accomplishes it, it's going to be God. And it, it's Russia invading Israel. So Gog comes Not from the land that. of Magog. It's it's Russia in addition to the Allies. Right. Iran. Yes. Um, Persia is included Persia. in the, the alliance. Um, uh, Meshach and Tubal would include Turkey. And so we have Turkey, we have Iran, we have Russia. And no time in history ever before have they been uh, allies. Buddy, buddy. Right now. Yeah, right now, they're best friends. Yes, they are. And they're working together. And people would dispute that maybe with Turkey. But Turkey's, Turkey's interesting. Well. They, they've, tried, they've tried to be included more in the Western powers. They but, did. But they haven't, they've never really been. There was a turn, right? There was a turn when, uh, when um, I can't even pronounce the guy's name, or the president. Erdogan. There, there you go. Um, when he came to power, some say illegally, but regardless of that, uh, there was a turn because the, they became more, um, uh, I think they're Shiites. I'm trying to remember if that's yeah, they they're Yeah, right? they're definitely they're more so, liberal as far as Islam goes. They're, but no, but so what's happened is they've gone the other way, right? They went to war. They, they were always Muslim nations. Yes, right? absolutely. And, mm -hmm. and so, but what happened is become, they became more radical and, and became more of a theocracy. Essentially, that's what they are now, even though they would probably argue against that. But. The thing about them is right now they're buddy buddy with Iran and they're also buddy buddy with Russia, even though at the very same time they're buddy buddy because they're in NATO. Yeah, yeah. Right? So He's, they're in a very interesting position. Right. And, and I think that they're gonna choose their side. That's right. And yeah. right, and they're also suddenly cozying back up to Israel. So it's interesting what's going on there. Yeah, but, watch here, it. but here's the thing about Turkey. We know that they don't love Israel. No. They don't. Um, they used to sort of, they don't love Israel now. Correct. And because there is this tension revolving around 
the gas line, the the pipeline yes. that has been proposed, and you know there was there was this d- dispute about it bypassing Turkey, and Turkey got yep. really mad about that, so they they shut it down. It's been kind of laid to the side for a while, sure. and I think it'll be taken up again. Yep, but there's a lot of stuff going on right now. There's a ton, but all we all we can say is this: Turkey, we can imagine Turkey going after Israel with Russia and Iran. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's very realistic scenario and the West would not reprimand Turkey for it. Yeah. And I don't think, I think that they wouldn't approve of Russia trying to make a power grab by going after Israel because Russia is the rival of Western powers, NATO. But having said that they don't like Israel. So if Russia invaded Israel, while they may not approve of the power grab because it would tip the balance, perhaps, you know, in Russia's yes. favor with all the resources Israel Absolutely. has, it'd be a strategic, you know, yes. victory. They're not going to like that. But at the same time, they're not coming to the defense of Israel. Yeah. And we see the whole world right now hates Israel. They malign Israel. Western mm-hmm. powers have gotten less and less uh, friendly with Israel over time. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and, you know, back in, what was it, 2018, whenever there was the big controversy about um, Israel was attacked on their anniversary. Yes. And it was brought before the United Nations. There were a lot of people right. that were saying, we need to punish Israel, make Israel accountable. And the only person there who was coming to Israel's side was America, specifically Donald Trump. And and, yes. and, that, and so that was that one person who's saying, no, we're, we stand beside Israel. Yes. We're going to move that embassy to Jerusalem. So you, you, had, you had a high note there. And now... I seriously, I think that if Israel was attacked in Trump's administration, there's a very good chance that we would help. But absolutely, would have been. But now we would not help. Absolutely. And so, anyways, like me and you know my companion here are saying, right now things are set up to where this Gog Magog coalition could happen any day. And I look it up all the time. I'll I'll type in Russia Israel. Yeah. When I get in the morning, I all Israel dot. Yeah, I just open up um, my computer in the morning. First thing I do, Russia Israel, because that's the next thing. Yeah, yeah. The rapture, I can't tell you when that's going to happen, no. right? And when the rapture happens, well, I'm going to know because I'm going up with that's the Lord. Right. Amen. But I don't want to be ignorant when Gog Magog happens because I want to tell yeah. everybody. I'm going to be pointing it out, saying this is it. I've been telling y'all this is going to happen. Right. The Bible's been telling this mm. for a long time. Praise the Lord. And uh, I wonder how the amillennialists and postmillennialists and and yeah. those people that don't take these prophecies literal, I wonder how they're going to react. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if we're here because the rapture could happen before. before. I think we it's don't know. After, but um, I kind of hope that it happens after, so that way I'll be able to use this as a witnessing tool. Right. This is God's word Absolutely, being fulfilled, yes. and I think that God might just well leave us down here to do that. Yeah. But we don't know. We'll have to see. You know. But what verse, are we talking about? We're talking about verse two. So it talks uh, about Gog, this the one that. who leads Russia. And if this happens in our lifetime, it's a good chance it's going to be Putin. Uh, Gog, the land of Magog, that's in the north. Uh, Josephus, Jewish historian, identified Magog as the Scythians. Yes. So the Scythians are ancestors of the Slavs, Eastern Europeans, including yes. the Russians. Uh, Meshach and Tubal also are are up north around the Black Sea area yes. uh, is sometimes difficult to pinpoint those, but it's agreed that Magog, Meshach, and Tubal, if you study the historian Josephus, he talks about how all of those, they represent 
the north, eastern Europe, the Russian steppes, uh, where the Scythians lived. And right. so even though they're not called Scythians anymore, right. even though they may not be called Mexican Tubal, some people think this refers to Moscow and uh, yeah, I don't and know Tobolsk. Sure, but if I'm pronouncing that last one, I told uh, Tobolsk. Yes, perhaps yeah. we don't know about that, but it doesn't really matter if you make a, a connection with the words there. We know that this refers to an area to the far north where modern day Russia is. So are you, are you, are you going to go towards the chief prince? And that's where you're going to talk about the fact that the chief prince could actually be. Yes. Uh, we're going to talk Rosh, about that because right? yeah, I want to look at the term Yeah, because this is what bothers me a little bit. Okay. What bothers me is people saying the KJV is inaccurate. The KJV is an error. And they, they'll say, here's a better translation. Mm. And I tend to agree when it comes to this particular verse that I'm going to show, show you, and we're going to talk about the words involved. I think that chief prince is probably better translated as prince of Roche. Okay. I do think there's a really good case to be made for that. However, the KJV is still not an error. You may wonder, am I contradicting myself? No, I'm not. When the KJV translators looked at this verse, they had two options here. They could say this is prince of Roche. That's acceptable. But they would also say, well, the word Rosh, nine times out of 10, this would be one of those few exceptions here. It means chief. Yes. And as I'm going to show you, the Hebrew construction allows for even uh, for this word Rosh, even though it is not an adjective, mm -hmm. even though it's a noun, it can act as an adjective. There are examples in the Hebrew Bible where I'll show you it's used that way. So, Chief Prince is a perfectly acceptable translation. Sure. And in fact, it may be the most obvious translation if you don't know that the word Rosh has connections historically with the Scythians in the north. Yeah. And if you know that, then you could say, oh, well, it seems to flow really well. You got Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Yes. So these are these are place names or people groups, okay? Mm -hmm. What have you. So I think that both translations are sound. So rather than saying the KJV is an error, mm. you say these were scholars, very smart men, and they were well aware of their options. They knew that they could translate it as Rosh. Right. But they said, based on how this term is used in the Hebrew Bible, Rosh means chief. Chief prince would be a literal translation, and they were trying to be faithful in what they did. So I don't believe the Hebrew, or uh, sorry, I don't believe the KJV English is inspired of God. Um, I do believe very strongly that God has used the KJV more than any other English translation. And I sure. think we're in the time of the Gentiles. And I think as far as the Gentiles go, English speaking Christians have impacted the world more than anybody else when it comes to like culture change, societal change in the past 500 years. Yes. Yes. yes so I'm saying, and so yeah. I think that there's a good argument to be made that since God has used the King James more than any other Bible version, mm -hmm. okay, any other Bible translation, that it would be unwise for us to stray away from it when it comes to what verses you include, what verses you exclude when it comes to those variants, like 1 John 5, 7, uh, also known as the Johannine comma, the three there bear witness in heaven, yeah. uh, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, these three are one. Yeah. I think we should keep that in there. Yes. And I think that I think that God has set his seal of approval on the King James. It's been faithfully used by faithful Christians. 
And I think that when people started departing from the King James, they were doing so because of rationalism and liberalism and theology coming from Germany, uh, you know, around, um, eight, the late 1800s. And I think that, um, we should be very wary about accepting the methodology of these critics who didn't even believe in the central doctrines of Christianity right. when they were proposing new versions, new Bibles. So I'm very skeptical about that, but I still don't think the King James English is inspired. I believe the Hebrews inspired and the Greeks inspired and God preserved it. And I think the King James helps us know, okay, which Hebrew statements, which verses are God's word. So when there's a variant here and there's one that's that, you know, you got one manuscript over here that doesn't have so this, this is, and one this that does. Back to the, so this in both texts, you're just going the manuscripts, right? They both say the same thing, right? This is not a yes, thing yes, where yes, yes. So it's different. It's yes. I'm just distinguishing. Yeah, them, it's, it's all the, the manuscripts are saying the same thing. So okay, this yeah. is one of those things where it has nothing to do with the text. Yes, it has to do with how you bring the Hebrew into English. Yes. What I'm saying though is, um, to to clarify, I don't think the King James is perfect. Right. I think that it's what you would call demonstrably inerrant, meaning that. I've not found a place where I can say that was flat out wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I can find a lot of modern versions where I can say that's flat out wrong. Right. But I've not found anything in the King James. Usually when I'm tempted to say, well, maybe that's not right. I research it. I'm like, well, I still may not agree with that particular option, but they had great reasons for going sure. that way. Okay. Yes. So anyways, I just wanted to preface everything with that. But the word Rosh means chief. Yep. It is a noun. Okay, so the question is, can it be used with another noun as an adjective? Okay, okay. so I'm going to read you right here the way it is in the Hebrew. And, um, as best you can. As best I can. It's been a while since I had Hebrew class, guys. It's been about, uh, my last Hebrew class was senior year of college, and that's roughly 10 years ago. So wow. I, I haven't brushed up a ton since then. So forgive me if you're listening to this. And you are fluent in biblical Hebrew. Just be gracious, okay? Christians are all about be grace. Gracious. Be very gracious, okay? So the word prince in Hebrew is nasi. Okay. Okay, it says nasi rosh meshuk vatuval. Okay. okay, so that is prince, rosh, meshuk, and tuval, or tubal. So if you were to literally translate that, okay, it could very well be Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Because the word of is not there, right? It, it's, it's no, it's not it, there. It's, it's not there. But this construct, yes, I'm we're talking about Hebrew syntax. Yes. This construction flows very well. And that's an argument that I've heard quite yes. often. It flows very well to say that you have three words here. Okay. Three peoples, three places. And this Nasi, this prince, he's prince of those three, yes. Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Yes. And that fits perfect. Like that's a good, yes. smooth translation. Yes. So the question is, does Rosh have any connection with a people? Now, I think that some people will argue that the King James translators, they saw a lack of evidence of any connections historically. Okay. And so they went with translating it as chief prince. Well, there are many ancient references to a people called Ros, okay, or Rox, yeah. pronounced in slightly different ways, but they all seem to have that same word origin. And I think the King James translators were aware of that. I can't tell you because I, I don't know what they brought to the table anytime they uh, 
discussed a translation choice, but um, it is pretty common information from antiquity that there were people that lived in the north. Yeah. They were Scythians. Yes. Okay. And that's interesting. There's the connection right there because Josephus, again, writing in the first century, said Magog is the ancestor of the Scythians. So in Genesis chapter 10, where it talks about Magog, and he's the son of uh, Japheth. Okay. But you can go there and read the genealogy. Sure. Magog, according to Jewish tradition, ancient Jewish tradition, was the ancestor of the Scythian people. And so here we are talking about them because it says Magog. Okay, we right. know that Gog is of Magog. Okay, yes. so that would automatically make one say, oh, okay, well, we're talking about the Scythians. So is there any connection between the Rosh mm. and the Scythians? Yes, there is. So the Greek, they referred to a people to the north, the Scythians, and they called them Hoi Ros. Okay, Hoi Ros is translated literally as the Ros huh. or the Rosh. Okay. Um, that difference in pronunciation is very slight. And Strabo, who was a very famous uh, Greek historian from the first century BC, he talked about the Roxolanians, Roxolanians coming okay. from the root Rox. Okay. So also very similar. And, and again, those are just two that I was able to find and make a note of here. So that way I'd have something to share with y'all. But if you were to go online and look up just a handful of commentaries, some of the older ones, like 1800s and before, mm. they're very good about quoting the classics. That's what I like about yeah. them. And so they refer to people like Strabo <laughs> and what the Greeks had to say in Josephus and, and what have you. So the Rosh were people that mm. lived in the land of Magog. Some people placed them um, on the Volga River. Okay. And so this would be a good way of a catch-all description. If you're saying Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, that's a great way of taking in Eastern Europe and Russia, specifically yeah. Western Russia. So this would be a really good way. If you're going to talk about Russians in the 21st century, if you're making a prophecy, right. this would be a really good way to get Russia in there. Okay. So is there a direct connection between Rosh and Russia? Mm. It's not a direct connection. But there is one that I think can be established. There, there's this debate among scholars, and, and I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not uh, in the know as far as all the details, but there is a debate amongst historical scholars where the term Russia came from. Okay. So some people believe that it comes from uh, the word Rus, okay. which refers to uh, rowers, and it's a reference to Swedish Vikings that rowed their longboats okay. down the rivers from Scandinavia to Russia. And uh, in, in, in modern-day Ukraine, around Kiev, sure. they set up a kingdom in the Middle Ages known as the Kievan Rus. So some people le believe that Rus is a Swedish term, or not a Swedish term, but a reference to the Swedish Vikings because uh. it means to row, and it's a, re a reference to those Vikings settling. However, there are other scholars that say, no, that's not where the term comes from. The term referred to a people long before the Vikings mm. that, again, settled around the Volga River. Sure. And the Rus were a Slavic people group. They were not Scandinavian Nordic Vikings. Sure. So that's the big debate. So if you if you go with the Viking view, then it, it would be hard to cement a direct connection right. between, okay, there, this is a people group mentioned here that existed in Ezekiel's day. If the term came about much later, because the Vikings were many hundreds of years after this, then that would be a problem. 
Right. However, there does seem to be ancient evidence that there was a Slavic people group related to the Scythians um, identified with them that lived in this area. And it could be that later on that Kievan Rus kingdom, it drew from that term. Okay. So it could have been a term that it was stamped on a place hmm. uh, that happens all the time. People groups, they, they stamp names on places and it could be that uh, that term Rus was derived from that rather than Viking rowers. Mm -hmm. So there are debates when it comes to name origins and etymology and stuff like that. So it gets kind of hairy, but all we know is the ancient Greeks long before the Vikings went to Europe. Um, there was a people called the Rose, the Roche, and they lived exactly where the Russians live today. So that's all I need to know. Yes. Now, now, as far as um, other translations, the LXX, What's the abbreviation for the Septuagint? Yeah. So the Greek translator or the Jewish translators of that Greek Bible. Yes. Um, they translate this as a proper noun. So this is the Rosh. Mm. So this is not in their mind. This is not chief prince. They think this that is. it's referring to a people group and it's probably because they were aware of these historical right. references. Um, however, I do just for the sake of being fair to the King James viewpoint, and because, I mean, I want to be fair. I want to read you one reference from 1 Chronicles 27. And uh, 1 Chronicles 27 is a place where a construction appears that supports the way the King James renders it as is when it says chief prince. So in 1 Chronicles 27, 5, um, it says the third captain of the host for the third month was Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada a chief priest. And in his course were 20 and 4,000 when it says chief priest there, okay. it says priest, which I assume in Hebrew, I'd have to look it up, but Kohen and the word chief there is Rosh. So it is functioning as an adjective, right? So you have a prince, the chief, that could be the translation of Ezekiel 38 two right. here, that he is the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Gotcha. So that works. Sure, absolutely. But the construction flows really well when you have Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And some people think that if you were to look at Rosh as an adjective describing the prince, then it would break up the construction in the Hebrew's awkward. Gotcha. So while it is acceptable, and there are some people who've gone as far to say, I mean, the King James violates Hebrew grammar. I've looked at several Hebrew scholars make their comments on this and they seem to admit this is acceptable, but it's pro probably not the way you should mm -hmm. render it. So what they do is they say, to be fair to this particular viewpoint here, this construction is used in the Hebrew Bible. Right. It doesn't violate Hebrew grammar, but Rosh does have historical connections with these other people groups. So when you have Rosh appearing side by side with these other terms and it flows better rendering it that way, you know, the probability that that's the way you should do it is pretty high. Yeah. So we should probably stick with that. So uh, I, I think that this really comes to um, how people should look at Bible translation. I think the word of God is sacred. Okay. I think that we should approach God's word right. with reverence. So the way they used to do things back in the day, if you were to read John Gill, John Gill has lots of commentary on 
translation choices. I was just reading his stuff. So he'll say, this is it right here. This is what we have in our English version. I don't know of any place. There may be somewhere, but it tends to be that people like John Gill and Matthew Poole and, and some of the olders, Matthew Henry, they don't disparage the English Bible because they know that it was produced by men of God who had a reverence for it and they were scholars. So what they'll do is they'll say it is possible that the Hebrew means this. And the KJV translators themselves did have marginal notes that they don't show up in modern King James editions, Mm -hmm. but go online and find them, get a 1611. And they do have marginal notes where they'll say, or this. So they admit we went with this because we think it's the best, but this but could, could work. Be wrong. But we want to be honest. Like we right. could be wrong. So they were godly men who who understood that they could be wrong. Yeah. And so whenever in the 1700s, 1800s, when people are making commentaries, they say it's our standard. We're sticking with this. Yeah. Okay. We have reverence for God's word. We're not going to create confusion in churches. We got one version, yeah. and it's a good version. However, when we're writing commentaries and we're preaching. There's nothing wrong with bringing insights from Hebrew and Greek and the KJV translators wouldn't have a problem with you doing the same. Right. So they may still say if they were sitting here today, they may say, well, we think you're wrong, but sure. it's possible. They'd say, yeah. we, we think that's possible. You know, we don't deny that it could be Prince of Roche. Sure. I think that it probably should be Prince of Roche, but I wouldn't recommend changing it. I would just recommend people doing their research. Right. People and, are lazy nowadays. Yeah. Just do some work. Pick up a commentary. Find some reliable, godly men who have studied the word of God, and you'll find this immediately. Yeah. Okay? You got a standard. You're never going to go wrong, okay? Because you can still connect this prophecy to Russia, even if it's not translated as Rosh. But you're not going to go yeah. wrong using the Bible. If you want to learn some more, you want to get the nuggets. I think Jack Mormon, he's a, a famous KJV defender. And he said, uh, I call them Greek nuggets. He said, mm-hmm. you, you have an English translation that's reliable. You can trust it. You won't go wrong with it. But if you want some nuggets, some insights, you're only going to get them if you get into the original language. And I think Either that Greek or, or Greek or Hebrew, Hebrew you know, or, yeah. But those Hebrew and Greek nuggets are really fun. And so here, when it talks about Rosh, I think that Rosh literally refers to the Rosh that the ancient people referred to. Hmm. The Greeks referred to their Scythians, their descendants of Magog. I think that that fits the bill for modern day Russia fulfilling this prophecy. Now, the next verse that I wanted to look at um, is equally interesting. And it is in the same chapter. So in verse 13, it talks about Tarshish. Yeah. Uh, yeah, So what I've always wondered, I've had this curiosity, like I've heard the different views, but I wanted to know what do I think? Like I want to, I want to make my own mind about it. So it mentions Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all the young lines thereof shall say unto thee, art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take a great spoil? So Sheba and Dedan, no one disagrees that these are Arabians. Okay, so these are people who live in modern-day Saudi Arabia. Yes. So they are looking on at this. They are not involved in it. They are not going to battle. They're not sending their men, and that fits pretty well with current Saudi Arabia. I mean, the way it is today, they become a lot more friendly with Western powers. And and Israel. And Israel. And Israel. I mean, it's just a fact. So... This may not have been reasonable back in the day, right. 
but today it's looking pretty reasonable. And so, so we get that it's the Arabians there, but Tarshish. Who are the merchants? Of- who are the merchants of- and their young lions? Or right, because that is the translation that we're going to look at. We're going to see whether or not that's vindicated. Okay, so I recommend. I think that it's Prince of Roche. But here, I think Young Lions is sound, and we should keep it the way it is, okay? So if you look at a lot of modern translations, if you get a parallel Bible. And their, and, and their village, with all its villages, I have in the MEV, strangely enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and ESV said, and their leaders, I think. It's leaders, like, rulers, yeah. Right? Um, which I was kind of surprised. I didn't know that it said that. Um, but really... First of all, I think you have to figure out who who are the merchants of Tarshish. Are is it Spain? Is it um um some say that it could be something about oh who are they? Up in towards Turkey, I think. Up that area, maybe north of Syria or something like that. Yeah, or yeah. Tarsh- because Tarsus people that's right, yes. I think people jump the gun on that one. Well, I, um, I would agree, because I don't think it's that at all, because yeah, that doesn't make but the the merchants of Tarshish, they're mentioned a lot, a lot. So, who are they? Who are they? Okay, so I'm gonna for, I'm just gonna upfront tell you who I think they are, okay, and then we're gonna see if I'm right. Okay, and if you think I'm wrong, that's okay. There's room for disagreement on this sure. one. But I think that the ships of Tarshish, the merchants of Tarshish, refer to Phoenician colonies yeah. in Western Europe that stretched from southern Spain all the way to Southwest Britain. Yeah. And so I think that it is really, I don't think it's a specific country. I think that at this time in history, the Phoenicians called their colonies along this coast where they had this distant trade. I think they called it Tarshish, or at least the Hebrews called it that. Yes. I think there was very well possibly a specific town, Tartessos, Tartessus. Yes. Uh, the Greeks talk about that. It's still not sure where it is. Most think that it was in southern Spain, but it's what they call semi-mythical. Like we can't really pinpoint exactly where it is. I think that it was in southern Spain, but we know that they did not limit the Phoenicians. They didn't limit their their trade in that area of the world just to Spain. In fact, most of the tin that the Phoenicians got wasn't from Spain. It was from Britain. And that's been recently proved. Yes. So this is where archaeology comes into things. Yes. So a couple years ago, I think 2019, I first read about this discovery. It was recent then. So I don't know if it was 2018 or sometime in 2019, but they, they discovered shipwrecks in the Mediterranean shipwrecks that were heading to Israel. and, And there were, uh, 10 remains that they found and they wanted to test it and see where it came from. So they compared the 10 based on the historical record. Okay. It came from the West. Okay. So this is where they got their 10. The Phoenicians had this trade. So where'd they get it? And they compared it with lots of different, you know, 10 yeah, examples. And, and yeah. I said, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. And I'm not a chemist. Okay. But right. they compared it. The scientists did. And they said the best match is the 10 that comes from Devon and Cornwall yes. in Southwest England. That's exactly what I was thinking. And yes. so it, and, and so they said, as far as the science is concerned, it appears that the Phoenicians were going all the way to Southwest Britain. I don't think it's that far. Uh, but either, it, right? here's the thing. Like, it, it seems far to me simply because when I read the Bible, it seems so far away from my ancestors, right? Because I'm thinking my people came from great Britain, Ireland, yeah, yeah, Northwest yeah. Europe. And how often 
isn't mentioned. Oh, never. Oh, I see where you're getting. So you have to understand what were the Hebrews saying when they said Tarshish? Yes. So if they were referring to Northwest Europe when they said Tarshish, then there are a number of reference to Northwest Europe. Yes. And the Jews had contact with them. And so that makes one wonder, wow, what if some of these Jews that were working with um, Hiram, you know, we know under Solomon, him and Hiram, the king of Tyre and Phoenicia, they had a really close alliance. Yeah. Uh, in First Kings ten, they had ships of Tarshish. That is ships that went all the way to Tarshish. Yes. Okay. So this took a long time, but they would come back at certain times. Uh, I think it mentions once a year. I have to double check that. Um, you can look it up. It's in a First Kings ten twenty two. Mm-hmm. But um, they would come back and they'd have ivory and gold and silver and. And they'd have ten. Uh, they've had. They'd have. Uh, it mentions peacocks and apes, even. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we know yeah. that the Phoenicians they did um, circumnavigate Africa. I was gonna say. Yeah. So they they were very far flung. Yeah. Okay. In their voyages, they established colonies in northern Africa. It's, you know where they established Carthage, and so they spent a lot of time abroad. And I think one of the colonies that they established was in Southwest Britain. So when Jonah was trying to Sorry. flee and go to Tarshish, he was trying to go away as far away as, as he could go in his mind, his Jewish mind at that time. Like, how far away can I go? Well, the furthest that I know is Tarshish. Yeah. So I'm going to get all the way over there. Yeah, that's what there's that show that I, I had you watch a few episodes of. Uh, time Team. Time Team. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Right. And, and they've done a, a lot of uh, archaeology, of course, in the UK, but um, in that area. And I remember a couple episodes them saying that you know there's the 10 in exactly those places you're talking about if just lost the names cornwall cornwall yeah, devon and um the fact that it was you know pre-roman mm-hmm. which would mean that so okay so that's at least before you know year zero we'll yeah call it, yeah right? uh-huh. so prior to that and the fact that there was all this tin coming out of there yep and where was it going to and you know here's the thing you know and I've read um, several lines of evidence for this, and I'm sorry I didn't bring the particular book, but The Forgotten History of the Western People. Mm. You can probably find it on AIG's website or Answers in Genesis website, but it has to do a lot with um, the spreading out of peoples after the flood. Yeah. And it does talk about Britain because the guy who wrote it's British, so yeah. he talks about early Christianity in Britain. He mentions that there's evidence of um, an ancient Jewish presence in Southwest right. England, he mentions yes. that there were, there's a good chance that there was a synagogue there. Mm. And, uh, there's this tradition that Joseph of Arimathea, right. You know, built the first church and he connects that with the Phoenician presence in Southwest England and how the Jews had a close trade relationship with their Northern neighbors in Phoenicia ever since King Solomon. That's and, interesting. And, and so that would mean that it, there's a good chance that there were Jews in Southwest England or, yeah. or not England, but Southwest Britain, you know, Cornwall, they were there from ancient times, which is encouraging for me because it makes me remember that, Hey, the world isn't as big as sometimes we think in antiquity, yeah. people moved around a lot and they shared ideas a lot. Yeah. And that gives me hope that maybe there were some Jews that introduced people to the true God. Right. And, and, you know, that was what Jonah was meant to do, right? Yeah. He didn't want to do it, okay? But maybe there were some faithful Jews that did do that. Yeah. You know? And, and Sorry, and I just remember this other thing. They found stuff that was, I think they said it was Phoenician, now that I'm thinking about it. They found some stuff 
in that area that definitely was from the Middle East, mm-hmm. at the very least. And I'm pretty sure it was Phoenician. Oh, yeah. So that would explain it. I mean, that's obvious. But we know that we know that they were there. And even in Ireland, um, we've right. talked about this before, probably not when we were doing our podcast, no. but in Ireland, in, in Tara, they did discover Egyptian remains or, or yes. remains of people that had Egyptian finery. Yes. And what's crazy is it's long been the traditional history of the Scots and the Irish mm-hmm. that there was an Egyptian connection yeah. that they had, they'd spent time in Egypt and then they went from Egypt to Spain and from Spain to Ireland. And that the ancestor of the Scots, the female ancestor Scota, okay. Was actually an Egyptian princess. Now I don't oh. know how much of that's true, but there seems to have been some evidence that there were people who had interacted between those two far flung countries. Um, so yeah, the world is a lot smaller than people sometimes think in ancient times, but, um, Tarshish, we know in Ezekiel 27, 12, it's the same book. Yeah. It mentions their tin trade. Yeah. And again, there, there were, there were, we're there about. were rich Sorry. deposits of various metals in right. Spain, but tin yeah. was something very particular to Southwest Britain. Yes. And they used their tin to, to combine with other metals. And so I think that there's a good chance that Tarshish could be identified with at least Western Europe maybe specifically Britain. Now that brings me, uh, brings me to another thing, the, lions, the young the lions, lions. Okay. Right? Yeah. So if the young lions is translated literally that way, as it should be, because by the way, that's what the word means. All right. Sure. So I'm going to, all right. The lighting's not too good, but I'm going to see if I can, I can um, find it here real quick. Okay. All right. The word um, kefir or kefir. Yeah. It's much better. Lights much better now. Uh, kafir is the word for young lion. Yes. Um, here it's in the plural. Yep. And I, in fact, I have a note in my Hebrew Bible right here that renders it literally as young lion. Um, it is used consistently in the King James translated as young lions. Um, but modern translations, they kind of depart from that here. They yes. render it as villages is a really common rendering. Uh, rulers. Um, I think young lions and rulers is pretty close because they would say young lions is figurative for rulers. Right. So that's not too far off. It's a little looser, but it's not wrong necessarily. But villages is very different than young lions and rulers. So where do they get that from? Well, the word kafar in Hebrew is very similar to kefir. So they, they have the same consonants, but they have different vowel pointings. And so they're very similar to each other. And that makes it to where you wonder, okay, which word is which? Sometimes it can be difficult to tell. Even among scholars, it can be difficult to tell. So some people will say the word here is the plural form for kafar, which is the word for village. So they'll say it's villages. But the problem is if you look up the Hebrew lexicons, like the Brown Drivers Briggs lexicon, I mean, it does not include an entry for the word kafar here in Ezekiel. It specifically says, no, this means lions. Okay. It it's rendered this way accurately all throughout the old Testament. So this brings us to Psalms 22. You know, it does, right. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Does it talks about lions, but does it mention the young lions? I don't, I don't know. No, no, but the word, as soon as you said that word kafir, I'm like, no, that's what it was. That's what he was. He was bring, using that word and how it was translated 
Um, and we'll and we'll have another. Podcast we'll have another podcast on, on that one because yeah, because I'd have to see how that applies. But he has to watch something. But as lions, for like three weeks. But anyways, <laughs> I'm a busy man. But as li- as lions, young lions yeah. at their feet. Yeah. Okay. So I'll go, I'll let you go back. I don't want to. We'll, go we'll down take that. a look. I will take a look at that one because okay. now you got my my interest for sure. Yeah. Um, you already had it, but I just yeah, keep forgetting. He's lying to me. <laughs> anyways, so. There's one place where the King James, I was looking up in a concordance, like how the, they rendered it. And they're pretty consistent. I mean, yeah. young lines, lines, lines. Sometimes they don't say young. Sometimes they just say lines. But um, let me find my English Bible here. here. Right there. Okay. So in Nehemiah 6.2, Nehemiah 6.2, there is one place where they render it as villages. And I'm like, what? Why did they do that? Okay. Come on, guys. What's going on? Like it literally means young lions. Even the Brown Drivers Briggs lexicon indicates that. So why do you render it that way? And as I studied it, I think that the King James wasn't wrong. I think that it just wasn't clear enough. So let me explain what I'm saying. In Nehemiah 6, 2, it says, Then Sambalat and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages. Villages, that's the key word, okay? In the plain of Ono, but they thought to do me mischief. Okay, we're Sorry. not going to talk about the context of that. Sorry, just a second. Together at, at what? To, it says uh, in 6-2, together in some one of the villages. Right. It, it, that's an older, more wooden way of just saying in one of the villages. Okay. I, my translation, well, this translation, I should say. ESB says at Hecafirim. <laughs> Heferim, yeah. All right, so the reason that it does that is because the word is confusing. Confusing. It's confusing. So they're they're transliterating it. Yeah, they're putting it straight into English. Now, I want to share with you what it says here in my Hebrew Bible. Okay, let me get to Nehemiah. Okay, so this is what they say. Um, Come on, where are you now? There was one time where you could laugh at my my pronunciation of something, and I'm usually laughing at you. It's funny. (laughs) Uh, it says, okay, so for the word here, uh, they say that the meaning is uncertain. It is either a, uh, a proper name or proper noun, like the name of a city or town, or it means village or villages. Okay. Now there is another word very similar and it's, it's a kefira. Again, y'all please don't make fun of me too much when you hear me pronounce it that way. It's like Hefiria. That was even worse. Hefira. It is the female version. Okay. So it's feminine and it means lioness. And gotcha. so there's this town that's mentioned in Joshua judges. It's mentioned in Nehemiah a couple times. Uh, Hefira means lioness. And again, if you go to the Browns drivers, Briggs lexicon, it identifies it that way. Now here it's the plural form. So some people say they're they're synonymous with each other. So it's talking about that town. However, I doubt it. I think that the reason it's in plural is because sometimes in the Old Testament, there would be villages clustered around one mother village. Okay. And so you would have a, a, a like an aggregate, okay? A lots of different villages that they all sprouted away from this mother village city states were like that. And you, you, you still have that today. You do. Yeah. And, and of course we got to understand that environs of, yeah, we, we, we have Jasper, we have Pickens, we have North Georgia. Well, we, well, we have, we have Jasper, we have, um, white, 
um, all these little towns. What's the one right over here? The Talking Rock. Talking Rock. We got Talking right? Rock. That's all yeah. Jasper, we got right? Hinton. Right. And you got Tate. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. Same thing. So what I think we have here is, uh, uh, the King James is translating this a little loosely, um, which kind of surprises me because the King James generally doesn't do that. Right. I don't think it's wrong, but it seems if you translate it really wordy, it would be kind of awkward. And maybe that's one of the reasons why they didn't go with this option. You know, we get to heaven. If it matters to us, then we'll ask them. Right. But here's the thing. I think that it's literally translated as let us go down. Okay. To the Kefirim, which is referring to a collection of villages that sprung away from Kefira which means lioness. So it kind of fits. It's like imagine they might even have called it. Like if we were roughly translating this to English, they might've said, let's go down to the young lions. And the young lions may have been a reference to the collection right. of villages that sprang away from the lioness, yes. the mother village. Yes. The lioness had lots of young lion cubs yes. and there are lots of villages that are around there. I just see where you, what you just so you did see there. what I just did there. Okay. Yes. So as I looked at this, I thought maybe this is a weird exception mm. that would maybe say, okay, well, possibly in Ezekiel 38, it should be translated as uh, villages. But I don't think this is an exception. I think that if the King James translators were just a little bit more precise, it would have read like this. Let us go down to one of the villages, okay, of Kepharim in the plain of Ono. That's just a little bit more. And perhaps they looked at it and said, that's a lot. Why don't we just say in one of the villages of Ono? Yeah. Okay. Or in the plain of Ono. So the plain is where these villages were. So what do you call the villages that are associated with the plain of Ono? Well, at this time in Nehemiah's day, they're Hefirim. That's what you call them. Yeah. Okay. That's the collection of villages yeah. down there. So if you were to functionally put it in English, let's go down to the villages in the plain of Ono. Yeah. Okay. But again, it's one of them nuggets. If you were to get into the Hebrew, you can see. Okay, well, they were not just any village, right? right. It was the Kefirim. Yes. So these were the young lion villages. So is it tra is this an exception? Is it literally meaning here villages? No. It's meaning a specific group of villages that are called the young lions. Mm -hmm. And that's why there are some versions that will render it Kefirim. But even they're a little off because sometimes they'll say Kefirim is one place. But I don't think it's one place. Right. I think it's a collection of villages. Sure. And I think that it's a, he's saying, let's pick one of those villages down there. Okay. And, and let's meet there. Sure. So in going back to Ezekiel 38, I think young lions is what we should translate it as. Okay. That's what the Hebrew means. Yes. Um, so now Tarshish and young lions. So Tarshish is depicted as having lion cubs. Okay. Mm. Young lions. This is obviously metaphorical. It's figurative language here. So if Tarshish is great Britain, Great Britain's symbol has always been a lion for hundreds of years. Yes. And I found, I want you to look this up. I want you to look it up on your phone. Okay. okay. And I've got, I've got the note right here. I think it's really cool. Okay. What am I looking up? So in war, go ahead and look up, um, war, war one poster lions or young lions do war world war one poster young lions. Just type it out exactly like that. Well, the, the, my problem is that, you know, typing is not really young lion. Um, it's not the best thing for me. Okay. Now, once you find it, it's going to have a bunch of lions on the poster. Wait a second. Let me just. 
Yes. Now I want you to read me what you see on that poster, if you can. Okay. The Empire Needs Men, of course. The Overseas States. Answer the call. Help, helped by the young lions. The own, I'm sorry, the old lion defies his foes. Enlist now. Isn't that interesting? Now, yeah. I, I saw that poster and I was like, I was giddy. I thought that was so neat. So in World War One, Arthur Wardle is the guy who painted that. Yeah. And he was famous for painting lots of different animals because he loved, you know, going to zoos and, sure. and painting those. So this was for World War One, and the British Empire is depicted as a pride of lions. The old lion is Great Britain and the other, and the other States, Australia, Canada, South America, probably Kenya at the time. So many others, America. I don't know if America was probably involved in that when he wrote that down. Maybe we didn't know that America did later on answer the call, but the purpose of it is great Britain is the, the lion, the lion. And there are lion cubs that sprung off from Great Britain. And we know this historically. I mean, we know that... Does it, The guy that painted this, that did, that did this poster, the question is... Go ahead. I know what you're going to ask. Go ahead and ask it. Was he aware of... Was he aware of the connection? Yes. Now, I tried to find some means of determining that. Sure. Um, I looked up his biography on a, several different websites. Sure. I, I wondered if he was a Christian. Was he a Bible prophecy nut? I couldn't find anything. Mm. So it it doesn't appear right unusual, now. Though, but it wouldn't be unusual. No, it wouldn't. It would absolutely not. I mean, Great Britain's the lion. That's right. Lo- and the British Empire's got lots of cubs. Right. Well, my point is that of him being a Christian and and having knowledge of this stuff. I mean, but I would like to see the history of interpretation. Again? Arthur Wardle, uh, like War D L E. That's how you spell it. War D L E. But, you know, yes, it's true that at this time there were Bible prophecy people who, you know, they were looking for the rapture and whatnot. But at the same time, we have to, I wonder this, the history of interpretation, like how far back does this go? And at at that time, yeah, there was a lot of Christianity in Britain. However, was dispensationalism, that view of prophecy, the main view? Mm. And is it just a coincidence that a dispensationalist was recruited to do a poster for yeah. enlisting. And he, and he doesn't put a Bible verse there. He doesn't mention the yeah. young lions of Tarshish. He just, the only thing that, that draws the connection is the, lions the young lions. That's yeah. it. But it's enough to at least cause you to raise your eyebrows. It's interesting because in this other poster, the same photo or whatever, it also says Australia, Canada, in, uh, India, and New Zealand, which is, I just found that sort of ironic that it doesn't say the U.S. That's what I'm saying, and I think that the, well, US, the U.S. probably, is, but the prop, but the reason U.S. wouldn't be included in well, that is because you guys are just, you know, we're st- you know, we're kind of like the redheaded stepchild. That's right. We burn. Oh, this is the anniversary. <laughs> yeah, no, I saw you post that. Yeah, uh, we we know uh, those Canadians right. burnt down the White House. That's we right. know. Right. We got you back in the end. <laughs> but anyways, I, I don't. You didn't. I, what? No, you guys lost that. Well, one. you lost the war. I mean, no, you lost the war with Team Twelve. Did we? I'm yeah. pretty sure you lost it. No, it was basically. I think it was actually more of a draw because well, we, actually, we fought back the U.S. out of Southern Ontario, 
is really i mean that went through all where i was you know raised well that. Like, there's po- no no American doubt no doubt right that here. we may have lost some territory but it was, it was an invasion. It was an invasion of the U.S. It did, it did amount to that eventually. Okay? Well, no, the U.S. came into... Came into I know, I'm just saying that it was reciprocated. Upper Canada, I should yeah, say. Yeah, I'm just saying it was reciprocated. Oh, yeah. So I'm saying that Great Britain did surrender in the war. And they did surrender in the war. And the news that they surrendered... This is... But, but not... Oh, you're talking about... Okay, keep going. Yeah, I'm just saying the news that they had surrendered in the war was over... It didn't reach the U.S. in time, and they in 1815, uh, it was yeah. 1815, I, th- I believe, that they had the Battle of New Orleans, and that oh. was the biggest battle of the war, okay. but it technically took place after Great Britain had already said... So when was the War of 1812? Well, it's kind of ironic, right? It started yeah. in 1812, but it lasted yeah. till 1815. Um, but anyways, yeah, anyways. Big, big rabbit trail there, and some of y'all Americans. are like, y'all are crazy, what are y'all talking about? But anyways, the point Canadians that... Canadians will get it. The Canadians will get it. And the Americans, maybe. I don't know. Don't know enough of their history, that's for sure. But Ezekiel 38, when it talks about Tarshish, I think that it does represent the tin trade that stretched all the way to Britain. So it's Western Europe, okay? So Western Europe, did Western Europe have many young cubs that sprouted out and populated the globe? Uh, Yes. Okay, so, and have they been generally pro-Israel? No. Well, think about it. U.S. has... The U.S. has. U.S. has, and historically, well, things have changed. But Great Britain has been historically pro-Israel. They're the. They no, were the, they really. I mean, you you had the beginning, right? You had the at the beginning. At yes. the beginning, yes. That's what we're talking about. But you know, once they became a country, that you know, they didn't real our state. I should say, the Britain really didn't support the Israel. No, I, I'm not saying that they did. I'm not yeah, saying okay. that they do now. I'm just saying that it all got started with them. So, yes. you know, the Balfour Declaration, yeah, the Balfour, that's what I was getting to them do. there, okay? Um, so Western powers have supported Israel more than anybody else. And, yes, and that's, what I'm, that's that. what I'm saying. And I'm saying that the young lions, including America in particular, probably the most influential of all the cubs. Absolutely. Has been pro-Israel from the start. Absolutely, And, it, and yes. we're not anymore. We're, no. we're starting to, well, we have departed well, from that. It's I mean, like you have, I mean, America's at a divide right now. So you have yeah. the two sides, right? Well, it's actually like, because I, I was thinking, I was just listening to this book. Anyways, the guy saying he, that he was a Democrat and this and that. And he hated Republicans. And I'm thinking, if he were alive today, I don't think he'd be a Democrat. You know, and I agree because with that. Because it's moved yeah, I mean, so far to the It left. has. It's shifted so far. But anyway, but, we don't need we, to go we, there. We at, least, politics, we at least know but. this much, that when we're talking about the young cubs, yes. okay, Western Europe has been more supportive Absolutely. of Israel being in the land than Eastern Europe, that is Russia, and the Muslim states surrounding Israel. Yes. Um, France used to support Israel. So that's what I'm saying. They, yes. The young lions have, from the very beginning, lent more support yes. to Israel. And, and we've had proxy battles with Russia in, in, in uh, 67, 1967. Yes. I mean, right. Western Europe is supplying Israel guns and ammunition yes. and, and Russia supplying their enemies. And so, yes. but that's what it's all about right now. You got Tarshish and the young lions, Western powers. Yes. Gog. Of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, yeah, yeah, yeah. Russia. They invade Israel. Makes perfect sense. 
We know they don't get along. Their relationship is getting really icy. People have said for the past few years, things have actually been pretty good with them because they've had it communication. Was, right? It's not anymore. No. Okay. It's turning cold once again. That's okay. Right. And this is what Bible prophecy said. Yes. Okay. So no, no matter what fluctuations happen and the skeptics say, oh, well, the Bible says this, but this ain't happening now. It's like, just give it a little bit. That's it's right. going to make its way back around. Just like the Bible says. And the Western powers, they are right now, okay, it could change again. But right now we're in a position where Russia is set aggressively against Israel, yes. could very well invade, and the Western powers are set to do absolutely nothing. Absolutely. And so that's the significance of it. So Tarshish, even if you can't pinpoint it to Great Britain, it seems to represent Western powers and all the colonies that sprouted away from those and those merchants, and again, the word merchant, merchant, yeah. trade, okay? Think of NATO. Yeah. Think of NATO. I mean, the, the, the trade involved. I mean, if you're going to describe um, Western Europe and America included, if you're going to describe them in any terms, merchants of Tarshish, merchants of the far west, it's a perfect descriptor yeah. in Bible prophecy. Now, there is one last verse it's I want to share. but hey. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. Not going to deny that one. Um, in Isaiah 60, verse 9, it says, Surely the isles, and that's talking about, again, the far west. Surely the isles, Isaiah 69. Surely the isles shall wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish first to bring thy sons from afar. Oh, where are you? Their silver and their gold with them. Right. Unto the name of the Lord thy God, and to the Holy One of Israel, because he hath glorified thee. Did you say Isaiah what? Isaiah 60, verse 9. I have never... 60. Heard this verse before, Isaiah chapter 60, verse 9. Sorry, I thought you were saying, anyways. But it talks about Tarshish, and it says, Surely the isles shall wait for me. This is talking about the Gentiles supporting Israel. Okay, I think this culminates in the millennium, without a doubt. Okay, and I think that we've seen that change. The Gentiles, guys, um, from my perspective as a dispensationalist, we have been stuck up, spoiled, rotten, anti-Semitic brats. Yes. You know, from the Middle Ages, okay, ever yes. since we abandoned dispensation or uh, premillennialism yes. in the first couple hundred years of the church, ever since the Council of Nicaea, and I think Nicaea did a good job standing on Christ's deity, but at the same council, there was this declaration that, look, we are not going to celebrate uh, Easter in any way that's connected with the Jewish people. We're not going to be associated with them. They killed Jesus. And that anti-Semitism has just burgeoned ever since then. And, and then you get to the 1800s, things start to shift. It is not a coincidence that friendly relations towards, is, uh, towards the Jews and towards establishing the Israeli state happens at the exact same time people come back to premillennialism, come back to dispensationalism, come back to Israel has a plan, or God has a plan for Israel. Yes. And the first people to be behind Israel, okay, before anybody else jumped on the bandwagon, was Great Britain. It was. Because Zionism... Yes. Well, it did not originate with Britain. Yes. They were the ones that said, we are going to back this. And I'm not saying that from their perspective, it was religious. Okay. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that at all. It's a secular movement. Okay. Zionism is. There are religious connections, obviously, but um, Great Britain was the first to get the ball rolling. Yeah. And even if they have even today departed from that. They started out good, and it says in verse 9, Surely the isle shall wait for me in the ships of Tarshish first. So this is talking about formally. The word here in Hebrew, it's the same word that's used in Genesis 1, 1, where it talks about in the beginning, Bereshit, okay? It's formally. 
So yeah, I think this is talking in context about the millennium, the millennial kingdom. But it's saying the ships of Tarshish first were the ones to wait upon God by blessing his people Israel and bringing the sons of Israel from afar that were scattered all over and bringing them back to the land. So I think that what happened, what started uh, with the Balfour Declaration, what started with Israel becoming a nation again and Western powers recognizing her birth, and that happened in a day, just like prophecy said, I think all of that is the catalyst for the coming kingdom. And I don't think it's going to be very long. Mm. Um, I don't know exactly how long. No one knows the day or the hour. But I think this process of the Gentiles, they may do so unknowingly, mm. but ever since then, the Gentiles have been handing things back over to the Jews. They don't even realize it. Yeah. The Jews who've been persecuted and cast off, they're becoming more prominent. They're becoming the epicenter, the world stage. Okay. They're occupying front and center. Everybody's looking at them and the Gentiles are losing that. They're going to lose it. They're going to lose their position as being blessed. Yes. And you know what? We have forfeited. We have, we have tossed it at God's feet and said, we don't want it like spoiled rotten brats. And and that's what Paul said in, in Romans 11. He's like, or was it Romans uh, 12? He was talking about Israel, you know, the branches being cut off. Yes. And he's like, look, you've been grafted in. He's talking to the Gentiles ethnically. He's saying, God's blessed you. He's turning to you. Y'all, y'all are receiving privileges that you never had before. Be careful because he can cast you off. He can cut you off too. Now it's not talking about loss of salvation. No. Okay. The Jews who were cut off and they died in 70 AD. Those were people that didn't believe in Jesus. Right. That weren't saved. But as a nation, they were set aside. And Israel lost all influence yes. for 2,000 years. And now they're getting it back. And it all started with the ships of Tarshish bringing them back to the land. And uh, they did do that, literally. Yeah. The British did literally you know, aid in that immigration process. Absolutely. And so I think that uh, that's another uh, circumstantial bit of evidence to support that Tarshish is Britain. And the young lions would be those colonies that sprung from Great Britain. And cool. I think that this young lion, America, where we are right now, I think that when Israel is invaded by Russia, we're just going to sit back and we're going to probably shake our head and say, oh, well, there, there goes Gog or Putin maybe is what we'll say. There he goes. He's trying to get that old. He's trying to get those natural resources. You, you know that this government, this, this administration is not going to do anything. And they're not going to do anything because look, look, they've already, it, look, Ukraine has been supported somewhat by Israel in all this, right? I mean, they, they've sent, they've sent some stuff. They sent some medical volunteers. Yeah, but they not sent, enough according to, but that's to what I was about to get yeah. to. They have done something, but it's not enough. Right. And it's, it's like Israel is, they're exposed. It's like they're naked before the world because the West is like, you're not given enough. You haven't denounced Russia enough. Israel's like, guys, do y'all realize, you know, what, what, what position we we're in right yeah. now? We got a lot going on. Okay. There are Russian facilities, military bases here in Syria. I mean, they got troops there. We got to coordinate. Yes. All right. Y'all ain't even real, but everybody's like, you're just being selfish. You're not, you're not yeah. supporting Ukraine. We don't like you. Well, they don't <laughs> and, like them, you know, because of other reasons. Of course, but it's just and, another one. Yeah. It's just another one. And, um, uh, I think that I, I, we're not going to see any change 
in the news. We're going to see more and more hate towards Israel, anti-Semitism. There was an article I saw the other day. Worse and worse. Yes, it, it's it's been it's it's growing right now, yes. and uh, people need to realize exponentially that exponentially growing. Yes, it, we are we are not past Nazism. We are not, oh. and it's happening in less obvious ways. Yeah. Um, but it's political too. Um, well, you have the totalitarian state that's you know becoming what were once free nations, right? Yes. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the U.S., that we have all these countries that suddenly are, are just, you know, you can't say anything. Yeah. Uh, the Netherlands, right? Canada. It, it's, and they don't, re- they don't realize it. That's the sad part. You know, they don't see it because, you know, they're fed all this propaganda. Yeah. Throughout time. So anyways, we're probably, uh, yeah. But anyways, hopefully if you're listening to this, you got something out of it. We're going to, we're going to do stuff like ended real positive. Yeah. We're going to do stuff like this every Wednesday. We're going to look at translation stuff and, and have a good time. So God bless you. Have a good evening.